Welcome, this is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall Smith. We focus on considering horror films both in terms of entertainment as well as their ideology, the social responsibility of their content, what sort of things they're rendering or casting as evil versus good, and discussing how and why hopefully you might might learn a little bit of sociology from our discussion of the films and it's lots of fun for us to do it so we hope you hope you have some fun listening and i'm laura patterson marshall and i both have our phds in sociology from the university of colorado at boulder and as i was actually just saying to my six-year-old earlier today i love watching horror films because it's by talking about the bad that we get to learn how to be good and we get to think about morality and how we should live. And I think this film is a a great film that falls into that category. Absolutely. This is a special episode of our podcast because we're watching a film from the Mile High Horror Film Festival, which is a virtual festival that is or was located in Denver. It has gone virtual because we are still in the era of COVID. So M-H-H-F-F, Mile High Horror Film Festival.com is where you can find out more information. You can stream this film as well as some others and support some independent filmmakers and then come listen to our commentary. Our episode this time is the film Slacks, S-L-A-X-X, a 2020 film directed by Elsa Gephardt, who co-wrote the film with Patricia Gomez. The synopsis from IMDb is... When a possessed pair of jeans begins to kill the staff of a trendy clothing store, it is up to Libby, an idealistic young sales clerk, to stop its bloody rampage. And I'll say this is a film with a lot of social commentary that is absolutely worth the stream. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you stream it through the, the film festival, you get to see a little Q&A with the director that has a, a couple of r- real nuggets about the film. And yeah, it was all around great. You can find... Did I miss something? Oh, spoilers. Spoilers for this film. I started to say that. And then spoilers for Swallow. I spoiled all of Swallow. Oops. Darn it. Don't let me spoil Swallow for you. Swallow was incredible. We did an earlier episode on that. And it's a, it's a fantastic film. If you enjoyed this film, we totally recommend watching In My Skin, which is a French film from the early 2000s. And we somewhat recommend watching In Fabric, which was a kind of an alternate reality or an alternate universe version of this film. Very giallo vibe, if you're into that kind of thing. Right. (laughs) Right, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, (laughs) Follow us on Instagram. You can find about new episodes. You can message us, recommend films you'd like to hear us discuss. That is at Collective Nightmares, all one word. And... You can find our entire catalog of episodes for free at our website, collectivenightmares.com. We should be on Spotify and iTunes. We'd love it if you'd rate us or recommend us or even just tell a friend to give us a listen who 
is someone who likes sociology or horror or ideally both. And uh, we're going to roll up our pant legs and wade out into the bloodstream of this film. All right. I feel ready right. now. Okay. Let's talk slacks. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk slacks indeed. I can go first. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that it had a lot of commentary. I think when we get into the weeds a little bit, I have a, I have a guess. And it's, I love what we do because I go into our conversation not knowing what's going to come out of it, but speculating often about what's going to hold up and what's not. I think parts of the commentary are going to hold up really well. I think other parts are going to start to crumble as we dig into them. And I think the parts that are going to start to crumble are particularly the parts having to do with racial and ethnic identity and international differentials in power and how that plays into the the corporate structure that she was critiquing. I think that's going to start to fall apart. But I think a lot of the general consumer culture critique and how these sorts of organizations, there's a word for that, <laughs> like take over people's minds and convince you of a reality that's not really true and sell through just false propaganda and all of that and controlling the people who work there and controlling the consumers. I think that's going to hang together fairly well. I suspect the other pieces are going to fall apart a bit, but I really liked it. And I appreciated a film that had that sort of angle because we've seen it a couple times now and we've purposely sought it out, I suppose, with In Fabric. And, you know, we even talked about, was that Dawn of the Dead? Yes, in the shopping mall. Day of the day, yeah, the, the, the whole shopping mall situation. It? And was it Dawn of the Dead? I think it's Dawn of the Dead. I think so too. Okay. So, anyway. you know, we've, we've mm-hmm. dug into these ideas with some other films recently. I was pleasantly surprised throughout this film, or not surprised maybe, but just pleasantly noticed how these issues could be dealt with in a way that to me didn't feel nearly as draining and difficult to watch as in Fabric. I enjoyed the film. I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun to watch. Yeah, I liked it. You thought this film was fun to watch, not In Fabric. Yes, I thought In Fabric was painful to watch, but when we (laughs) dug into it, I really could stand behind the message, and I thought the way they did it was smart. The messaging they wanted to put forth in it was smart, and so I appreciated it for that, but it it was painful for me. And this aesthetically just was actually fun and got at some of the same ideas, so I appreciated that. I love that we watched In Fabric to have as a point of comparison for this. I, and I think that's absolutely something if you like this and you were curious, or these are ideas that are interesting to you in fabric is absolutely a, another movie you should check out. I, I mean, it's not, it's like you said, like this is totally the like fun horror comedy version of in fabric, which is the very serious, dramatic, take ourselves seriously version. Right. Though technically listed as a horror comedy as well. Uh, that's right. <laughs> but, but yes, this so, is the okay. lighthearted so, horror comedy version. So right, like this is the American slapstick version, whereas In Fabric is the as dry as it could possibly be British humor version, which maybe some of that humor was lost on us, us not being British and whatever. We did decide there were like two, two jokes in In Fabric that we got, right? <laughs> A couple things were funny the second time around. A couple things were funny. <laughs> a couple. Right. But nonetheless, yes, I, I did enjoy it. It was. It had some whimsy to it. I love a good, obvious, anti-capitalist, anti-consumerist, anti-worker exploitation film. 
we are the tar- target audience being, <laughs> being, being liberal, middle class, upper middle class, well-meaning sociology professors. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to, if you, Kephart, if you want a target audience or a focus group, we're your people. And that being said, this is a film I think you could assign for a class. I think it's clear enough. I think young people would, would relate to it. Fast fashion has come up, at least among my students. I don't know if your students talk with you, but that, that's something that has gotten to be on their radar, at least in my experience, or at least at, at CU with, with some of my students. It was fun. I appreciate it. It didn't take itself super seriously. And with regard to the, the Q&A, I always love to hear that a director for the film, Kephart, that's her name, right? I always love to hear a director choose a stance and a perspective and say, yes, this is what I was trying to do. And these details were towards that end. So I appreciated that. I'm going to try and say this as diplomatically as I can so we can leave it in. Laura, you can tell me if I'm not. I think the Q&A from the, from the Mile High Horror Film Festival with the director, there were missed opportunities when, when asking the director and the director clearly wanted to elaborate on her political and social motivations for making this particular film of not having pursued that line of questioning. So for example, and I think that's what you were getting at, Laura, it would have been really interesting to know why she chose particularly the the Indian woman as the worker. And that's where the cotton was from presumably. And and what some of those other dynamics were. I would have loved I would have loved to have asked her about why make the jeans unisex? Did you consider making it really women's? I don't know that much about fast fashion, but it just historically and still it seems like that's targeted much more still towards women. So I think there were there were clear missed opportunities and uh, Yeah, and there was commentary on on racial and ethnic stereotyping that I think we're going to need to dig into a bit, but gosh, I would like to have had her input into that because some of that I think got a little bit messy and I think it's going to be interesting when we start to parse through it, but it would have been great to be able to ask about that. So I I agree with you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was clear. It wasn't overly complicated. I really appreciated watching this back to back with Antebellum as well, where there was this back to that, historical materialism right it's it's the it's the economic conditions so we've got slaves so as to not give spoilers for antebellum we have slaves picking cotton in the cotton fields in antebellum south slavery and now we've got this this other film that's set the modern day with young women in india picking cotton for the same system and are also giving their lives to the production of those goods. And that's, that was just really interesting juxtaposition to me to have that grounded. Should we say, God, can I give a historical materialism definition? Sure. Uh, <laughs> that was kind of a rhetorical question. You might have to help me with this. For those who uh, haven't heard that, historical materialism is one of Marx's foundational concepts that doesn't, get nearly as much attention, but it's the fundamental idea that the resources that are available for people to survive 
to create a living, whether that's selling their labor or growing and their own food and creating their own shelter are the most significant determinants for lifestyle, for the opportunity to thrive or not. And then the different conditions that folks have available to them and the sense of resources for them to thrive, or if they do not have the resources and they need to sell their labor and so on, really impact and influence the relationship between people in different classes. And so, and so in the case of something like slavery, the historical materialist conditions are, here's the resources and some people are controlling them with brutality and guns and some people are giving their lives to extract and transform those resources into value, into products, goods and services. is not so bad. No, I think that's great. And I think the one of the big points is that that's in contrast to what people think is important. So like the ideals that we think we hold, that these material conditions are actually more important than sort of the ideological conditions that we often, people may let drive them even when they sort of should. And I think I'm putting air quotes, but probably the air quotes really should just not be there, <laughs> just should um, focus on the material conditions instead. Yeah. So... It was cool to see two films that took very different approaches because they were dealing with two different time periods, two different ethnic groups, two different regions of the planet. But these are still the still issues that we're struggling with as, as people, particularly in the U.S. I know this was made in Canada, but I guess we should say Western industrialized world. Yeah, it was fun. So yeah, and I, I'm all, I'm all for talking gender. I'm all talking for talking ethnicity. I have uh, a proposition on how we lay this one out. I, I think we should start with the low hanging fruit, and I think we should start with the critique on consumerism and on these sorts of large corporate structures. And and as oh, what was her name again? Kephart. Kephart. Yeah, as she said in the Q and A, these corporations that form these totalitarian regimes and control the workers and control the people that you know, control the consumers. I think we should touch on all of those points that were highlighted by the film, because I think that sort of moral standing and ideology was really clear in the film. And then maybe dig into some of the deeper stuff that, that gets a little bit trickier. That sounds great to me. Okay. So we have this idea that the workers in these institutions are certainly being controlled and are being controlled for the purposes of the corporation. And at the same time, kind of this ties right into what you were saying with historical materialism. And I guess the little caveat that I gave on that, that people don't, the workers don't realize that they come in functioning under these ideals and thinking what they think is important and what they think their role is in this institution is not actually their role. And that's works in the, to the benefit of the corporation because they're able to control the workers better. And we see that through, was it Libby? Was that yes. her name? L Libby's our Comes in, plucky newcomer. Right. Who thinks that this corporation is super ethically upstanding and she's wanted to work there since she was 16. And she's so, she's so bought into the ideology that the corporation is selling. And so she is super excited and we see her become disillusioned over the course of the film and realize toward the end of the film that all of these things that she believed about how this corporation was good actually aren't true. And that's a shock and eye-opening to her. And I think that's meant to be one of the points of the film that 
these corporations aren't actually doing good and they are actually manipulating their, their workers and the consumers into believing that they're doing good. Beyond believing that they're doing good, there's also the manipulation going on with the consumers and with the workers that you need these products. And like you said, with fast fashion, you need to keep up, you need to keep buying the newest thing. You know, it's, it's going to be outdated if it's from a month ago, that was three seasons ago all of that. And with the consumers at the end, when Libby is trying to protect them from the corporation and they just bust down the doors and come in, very much a, a throwback to what we saw with Dawn of the Dead, this idea that you have these mindless consumers who just bought into the ideology and they're going to consume, 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 and not see the real harm that this is doing. Again, which ties right into what you were saying with historical materialism. They're acting based on ideology that happens to not even be true and leaving out this whole material component of what's happening. Um, I'll start there. You want to jump in with some more? Yes, I do. Give me just one second. I'm going to throw in a quote from our our person, Thorstein Veblen. This is from 1899 in a now epic, classic, canon article, uh, Sociology of Conspicuous Consumption. Since the consumption of these more excellent goods is an evidence of wealth, it becomes honorific and conversely, the failure to consume in due quantity and quality becomes a mark of inferiority and demerit. And that's why we're still reading Dear Veblen 120-something years later, because <laughs> Veblen was right on then, and it still applies very nicely. Um, Absolutely. And I'll jump in on that just a little oh, bit. Oh, please, that yeah. He- well, the idea of conspicuous consumption that he put forth was this idea that we consume more than we need because the act of being able to consume that much imbues social status on you. And just to throw it in, because I love teaching on this subject, oh, he great. also talked about conspicuous leisure and conspicuous waste. And so these were all kind of the same ideas. If you can, if you can show that you're leisurely, you know, you can wear clothes that show that you don't have to work hard, that you can have skin that doesn't look like you've had to go work out in the sun or you don't have dirt under your nails or you can wear, you know, clothes that are not very suited to say manual labor or like running away. (laughs) You know, you can wear high heels or something like that. Like you, you don't need to be super functional with your body in the clothes that you wear. That can be a sign also that you're well off because you don't have to be subject to these other constraints. Um, And conspicuous waste is similar in that if you can, if you can leave things behind, if you don't have to use everything, you know, you can leave food scraps behind and you don't need it. You can, I give an example in my class where I talk about people with the the big cars with the gross little tailpipe to just spout out like tons of pollutants so that you can sort of show off your level of pollution offput. It's like, you know, I'm so powerful that I can separate myself from the harmful effects of all of this out of love of Veblen. I want to throw that yeah, in. Right. It's called rolling coal. Yes. Yes. In order to avoid stultification, he must also, he being the discriminating gentleman, he must also cultivate his tastes, for it now becomes incumbent on him to discriminate with some nicety between the noble and the ignoble and consumable goods. The cultivation of the aesthetic faculty requires time and application, and the demands made upon the gentleman in this direction therefore tend to change his life of leisure into a more or less arduous application to the business of learning how to live a life of ostensible leisure in a becoming way. So yes, being leisurely is now work because you got to do it right and you got to do it consistently and you got to do it. Ideally, you know, you want to update your style blog every day because (laughs) otherwise how are people going to know that you're 
conspicuously being leisurely. <laughs> you know, moneyed wife has started a lifestyle blog <laughs> and uh, Veblen would be either proud or aboard, you know. <laughs> Depending. Proud of his vision, sad at the truth. Right. Sad at just how 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 poignant and how far that's developed, far beyond anything he probably could have imagined. So there, yes. So there's that. There's so you covered anti-capitalism or anti-consumerism. Did you do anti or the concerns about production, the propaganda around? Oh, it's free trade and it's fair, organic, and it's. No, who knows? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But if we are able to, through advertising and, uh, and media and all this, uh, all this promotion, we can attach the notion that somehow all of this that is decidedly unethical in the sense that it's contributing to global warming and all kinds of waste of resources and money. But if we can tell you that that's not really what's happening, what's happening is that you're giving someone a job and we're not, not so worried about the jobs, but at least you're not killing the planet by doing all this because it's ethically sourced and, and organic and whatever. Then we can charge $150 for a pair of $5 pants instead of $10 for a pair of five, $5 pants, which. Right. Oh, 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 sorry. Oh, please. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and, and so with regard to environmental issues, I've heard that referred to as greenwashing, yes. but that ties right into what you're saying with conspicuous consumption as well, because greenwashing can become its own form of conspicuous consumption. So if, if a corporate entity can take on this image of upholding important ideals, then without having to break from our consumer identity and consumer culture, because that would be very hard for us, we can keep consuming, but then try basically espouse the anti-consumerist ideals through consuming. So still keeping the consumption machine rolling and making it really easy on ourselves because we don't want to do anything hard or actually give anything up in our life, but we can buy things that will symbolize to everyone else that we are somehow elevated above the broader consumer culture. Right, right, right. And they do deal with, and that's ultimately the, I thought the commentary about the fast fashion was really great where he has his little monologue about, you bought that a month ago, a month ago is three seasons ago. You need to have clothing from this season. And she goes up to buy her, her shirt. And, and they're like, you don't actually get hired for another, whatever, six minutes or whatever it is. So you don't get that discount until then. But you do have to, you are required to wear our clothing to, because you need to represent the brand. And I love telling this story of the... The tragedy that was my interview with Apple, so I was, I thought it'd be whatever, it'd be fun, it'd be kill some time to kind of have a whatever job like that after grad school when I was still figuring out what I was going to do. And I went and interviewed at Apple. And like the first thing I did was criticize Apple Pay because it didn't allow to tip the workers because our interview was a casual conversation at Starbucks. And whoever the manager was was like, oh, and look at how great this is. I could just pay with my phone by just touching it to this or whatever. And I was like, oh, well, how do you tip your person? Or how do you tip the barista? And he just looked at me and he was like, you're not gonna get hired. So I, I mean, he didn't say that. He went through the motions. But by the time I'd ridden my bike home, I got the email. And I was like, you're not gonna get hired. <laughs> 
but it's okay. So that's, I just kind of want to interject my little story, but it's that brand loyalty that these companies demand. And I want to, there's an article that I also saw, and I don't know if you do as well, best in casino. That's cool stores, bad jobs. And it's about, it's just that it's cool stores, bad jobs. It's these jobs that suck. But so best in casino actually talks about what I found is that young people see low paid chain stores as places to socialize with friends away from watchful parental eyes. They can try on adult roles and be associated with their favorite brands. So it's, and, and then the, the wrinkle in that is it's actually kids from affluent families who are able to get and keep those jobs because for them, they don't need it as a job. It really is this way to, to have an opportunity to socialize to, um, and to be cool because if they can get a job at a store or with a brand that is cool, they might get some discount and it's, and there's that, this weird like branded association, something that I kind of got lost cause I'm so anti, but I guess you see it now with what that has morphed into. I mean, best in casino was writing this in 2013 and I see that as really morphing, having morphing into influencers where from what I understand is like, it's an honor, quote unquote, or it's like, cool. If you get to be a shill for some brand, right? Like you can't just go on and be like, Hey, I think this is a cool brand. Only the cool people are only whoever the people who are deemed worthy are, they get sent maybe some products and, or they might get a, 20% Uh, 20% off discount code to give to their friends and their followers. And that is like, oh, wow, great. I have this wonderful, I get some sort of uh, status points out of just the opportunity to sell this brand, which is this like just such a false, empty exclusivity. Because every single fucking one of these things is being made in the same factory by the same 14-year-old Chinese or Indian girl who's, some of them are getting ground up in the, in the machinery and, and all of that. But I, 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 this is a, it's a good, um, I'll just read the last paragraph. We, I, so I have it to cut in, but affluent young workers who think of their jobs as an extension of their social lives are less likely to speak up when their jobs are problematic, when they experience sexual harassment or when they see gender or racial discrimination, viewing them as just quote, part-time jobs, end quote, as ways of associating themselves with a cool brand, rather than supporting themselves or families this growing group of affluent young workers is also less likely to complain about how little they're paid. These days it's hip workers and their disdain for fast food employees that are tilting the labor market in unexpected ways, which is, is exactly what's happening here. Right. To the point where the satire is great too of Libby is like, yeah, I think people are being murdered (laughs) and uh, chip or, or uh, what's his name? Craig. 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 <laughs> he totally could have been named Chip, just for the record. <laughs> uh, Craig is like, oh, don't worry about it. And there's this super false, I respect your religious ecosystem speak, but they obviously are not actually there. That's all just lip service because they're being watched and there's worried about harassment, but all of it is still actually happening. You know, the more the more we talk about this, it's it was really a fun movie, and they they got a lot in there, without it being overly complicated or 
overly self-involved or so yeah yeah it's it was fun it's fun I want to get one more cool thread in there on the topic of what you're saying, because I I love what you were just, what you were just outlining with that sort of upper middle class, the way to look at jobs and how that influences noticing, I guess, the harms that the jobs are doing. And it was really good in this film, how, like you said, when Libby went to buy her clothes, she had to pay for the clothes because she wasn't an employee yet. And there was some mention also when she was in the hallway later, one of it was to bribe her for, letting the murders go unchecked or whatever. And Craig said something like, you know, I'll, I'll waive your first month of mandatory purchase plan or whatever it is. And so this idea that these workers are not even necessarily making money from their job because they're being forced to spend a bunch of money just to have the job to like uphold the image, which I think ties with what you say. And I also, I couldn't help but think this all throughout the film. I was trying to pull this thread together. And I think as you were talking, I just did. There's a sociologist named... Zygmunt Bauman, he's Polish, but did I get the name right? And he talks about prosumers and prosumers are basically when you turn the consumer into a producer. So like the self-checkout at the grocery store where you are the person making the purchase and consuming from the corporation, but the corporation then also gets you to come in and do the work for yourself so that you both produce whatever the good is that you're buying and then buy it yourself and then leave. Okay, how much do I owe you to work for you for free? Don't rip me off. I'm no dummy. And I was thinking, this is almost like the opposite of that. And I don't know if he has a term for that or not, but I kept wanting to tie that together during the film. Here you have the people who are supposed to be working for the corporation, but the corporation is also turning them into consumers at the same time and sort of forcing them to consume from the same products that they are then selling, like they're selling it to themselves, basically. And that I thought was a really interesting corollary to that. Absolutely. I'm, I haven't assigned that article in quite some time, but I, I appreciate you bringing Bauman back up. Zygmunt is a, is a fun name. Did you consider that for, for Noah? Or was that on Ziggy, the table? Ziggy, that'd be all right. <laughs> that would kind of be all right. I like the Zig with the Y. Z-Y-G. That's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah well, that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> that might have made one of the guests, actually, if, if you thought of that back then. Right, right. Okay, so what else do we have? Did we have we hit all of those points? We have our blogger. We have this propagation of the empty consumer culture. We've got our Steve Jobs, Tim. Yes, Cook, right. Uh, Elon Musk, detached asshole who is middle-aged and white and thin. <laughs> and leads the cult, right? Can do no wrong, demands demands exorbitant loyalty and protection. And that was something, like I said, I love it when a director takes a stand. I appreciate it when Kephart was just outright was just said, so many of these corporations have just become totalitarian, totalitarian in how they operate of, you can't go to the bathroom, you can't go to this, you're locked in except for this window that's 10 minutes or whatever timed so this other person can get in, but you can't get out. We're going to, is this done yet? We're going to monitor this. And that hyper surveillance scrutiny of employees, even though they're really not, even though they're making virtually nothing and, or they're making some terror, you know, terribly low paid wage and they've got to buy products from the same place. It's, we get real back close back to like the, you know, the mine workers in the company store 
from from a hundred years ago. Merle Travis and the immortal sixteen ton. Some people say a man is made out of mud, but a poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bone. Oh, it's a mind that's weak and a back that's strong. He loads sixteen tons. What do you get? You get another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And... And I don't know where else I was going to go with that. Uh, and like she said, the aesthetic and the propaganda, believe and become, and I don't know, whatever else the other one was. Oh, that was good. Yeah. I can't think of anything else other than, other than it, when we wanted to get to talking about gender. And uh, I had one topic I wanted to oh, problematize on the whole consumer culture critique. And then, then I think it'd be great to move into that. So I was a little bit confused by the fact that the people that were killed by the genes first, at least, were trying to steal them, right? And there was such show of the slogan that, you know, when you, when you steal, you hurt everyone and the whole corporation is going to suffer if you steal things. And so at first I thought that had to mean something. I thought there had to be some sort of message there. But by the end of the film, I actually found that to be muddy. And I wasn't sure if that was supposed to mean anything or not, or if there were sort of two separate critiques, but I think it's very dangerous to have the critique of, hey, look at this slogan that says that if you steal, you're hurting the whole corporation. Like that's, you're obviously supposed to look at that and be critical. And then also have the people who do the stealing get killed by the pants. That just, I couldn't put that together. And I ended up feeling like it was, I don't know, it's maybe a mix up. It, it just, it was confusing and it confused the point a little bit. All these other points we've laid out, I thought were very, very clear. And that one confused me. So how did you read that? I'm so glad you said that. This is, I think, part of the problem of when I watch ahead of time, because I think if you had asked me that, or if I'd immediately watch, or if I'd watched the film immediately before our discussion, that would have still been on my mind. Because yes, and just to spell that out, the classic argument in horror movies is, as Laura likes to phrase it, which is, this is really her, her point anyway, there's a good bucket and a bad bucket. And depending on who we kill and how we're commenting on the film, I guess not we, but the film is killing bad things or valorizing good things. And so if you have a evil company and people are stealing from an evil company, that is two wrongs that would kind of make a right. But then if you kill a person who is stealing from the evil company, you're actually siding with the company? It can make the company the villain, and that would be appropriate. That's where I thought it was going at first. I thought the genes were on the side of the company, and they were killing the people who were trying to steal them because you see these big signs that say, stealing hurts us all. And so obviously, it felt to me obvious at the beginning of the film that the company was the villain. And so with the genes as their minions, that mm -hmm. fit. But by the end of the film, what you realize is that the genes are actually fighting the company. And so then it didn't piece together anymore. And I just got, I got lost in that a little bit. But it's because of the theft, right? Because the assistant manager, the blonde woman, 
Barb? Peyton is the blogger, right? Peyton Jules. So Barb is the blonde woman who... Oh, fuck. I don't know. Who's the first victim in the stall who stole the pair of pants. But she also does work for the company, right? She does. Yeah. And so, I mean, it could have just been that the stealing was a way to get someone in the clutches of the pants, so to speak, so that the pants could start killing. And it wasn't so much about the fact that they were stealing, but it was just odd that all of them were stealing, right? They could have had other ways that those people would have gotten alone with the pants if they needed to get killed. And then the pants could have been fighting against the company by killing people who worked for the company. It was just, it just seemed odd that they were killing people who stole them. Like I said, juxtaposed with all those signs that were clearly from the corporation's perspective, anti-stealing. So help me just one more time. The stealing from the company is, we would consider to be an attack on the company. Which we might consider to be good in the context of the good versus evil that the film laid out. Okay. I was trying to explain that earlier and apparently I didn't. I was trying to help and it didn't work out. So that's what, I just want to make sure that I'm I'm understanding what what the conundrum is. So if whoever it is works for the company, decides, and the company's evil and decides, I'm going to stick it to the man and steal this pair of pants, we would think that would be a good thing. So if the pants then kill those folks that's really on the side of the company because the company's getting the retribution for stealing from them. Like, shouldn't the pants kind of agree with the stealer? Now, I know that theft isn't the pants' main... <laughs> it's funny right. to say that. It's not the <laughs> pants' main beef. However, shouldn't they be a little bit kinder to someone who is not just a, an automaton for the company, but instead is actually going behind the company's back? Maybe the pants don't care. But it just felt like an odd narrative choice. I would love to ask the filmmaker that. Like, why right. have them steal? Because especially when you're, you're drawing attention to this whole corporate culture around, like, don't steal, even though we're clearly stealing from you, stealing from the earth, stealing from all of the consumers. There's clear hypocrisy in that. But I, I don't know. I, I didn't know how to interpret that. And I, I found it a little bit messy in my own head. Yeah, and I remember thinking it was messy too. And, but we do know that the pants care. Because the pants spare Libby and Shruti, the Indian woman. Because the, the pants spare Libby and Shruti later because even though they work for the company, they're, they're willing to hear the story of the pants and help ally them. So we do know the, play, the pants care about motivation and, and what their actual role is within the company. That is muddy. I don't have a great theory to, to unravel that or to, to separate the dirt from the water there. I don't know if this really explains anything or helps, but I feel like there's World War II propaganda that was, especially with a totalitarian regime, it's very, you know, any act of disobedience or, or challenging the regime is, has to be punished extraordinarily because it's, it's a symbolic, it's more the symbolic violation, even if it's a, I don't know, it's like a, it's like a, a criminal organization. You don't get to steal from the cut or from the payout on the job because it sends a message that, well, if this drug dealer isn't kicking up everything they're supposed to, then what are all the other drug dealers going to think? They're going to start questioning whether or not we have authority and how that plays out to the, the killing of the pants. I don't really know. I loved that she acknowledged flat out that the SS from the Super Shapers was homage to the SS of the Schutzstaffel, the Nazi paramilitary group. 
So, but that does get muddy then because the blood fills in the S of those pants. And it does seem like they don't seem to be pure victims in the sense of just like you're right. She didn't need to be stealing them. She could have been like, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to put these on because I want to see what the super shaper experience feels like. And if they're really all that as great as they say, without the full intention that she was going to going to steal them or I think that's just muddy. I don't know. I, anyway, I don't have an answer. That would be a great question for Kepart. And what was your other, didn't you say you had a second concern? No, that was, that was, that was it. And then, yeah, we can move on to the, the racial stuff if you'd like, because I think that would be a really interesting place to go next. So we have Shruti, who's our Indian woman, Indian American, because she speaks Hindu, a little bit of Urdu as we learn English. We have Libby who has some sort of familiarity with at least Bollywood something with Indian culture and then the Asian Lord Lord, and then everybody else is white. And can I ask a question here as we're laying this out? Sure. Is it true that everyone who was benefiting most from this corporate system was white? Then there was Libby too, but we have the Craig who wants to climb the ranks. We have, I don't remember his name now, but the company icon. Harold. We have the woman, did you say it was Barb? Was that her name? Yes. Who was she? Although she seemed to have more power than Craig. Oh, no. Oh, 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 oh. Barb was the Harold's assistant. Hunter, wasn't the Hunter the, the woman who ends up Oh no, Hunter is uh, the, she might be black, might be multiracial. She was the other employee. She was, I think, the second victim. Somebody of color. You know, it's hard to tell race from from looking. I'm trying to sort out who is the person who who was, uh, yeah, like you said, came in with Peyton at the behest of Harold. Peyton's the blogger to like manage... That was Barb, right? That was Barb, yeah. She okay. seemed to have more power. The blogger had more power in a different way, granted. Right. She was benefiting clearly from this whole system quite a bit because all of her power and prestige and followers and whatever was coming from it. So I'm not saying that everyone who was white had power, but just was everyone who did everyone was I say that backwards. Everyone who had power were they all white? The people who were benefiting most, like I said, from the system. It sure looks like it. Harold Whiteman at the top, which I did notice. Craig aspiring to be at the top and and was top of that store. And then Barb, who was probably a regional manager or something above Craig, because she she tells him at the at some point, you're nothing but a store manager. That's all you're ever gonna be. Just deal with the fact that I'm gonna get the next promotion, whatever it is. So those three are definitely at the top and they're definitely white for sure. And then, yes, our hunter, uh, who is uh, a woman of color, is, is killed and is not particularly powerful. Neither is Kenny. Kenny's just an associate. Or So, yes, we have a, a woman of color. We have a, a man of color, Lord, and they're both killed. And then we have a white woman who's killed. And then we have couple other white women who were killed. And then Kirat is the pants. (laughs) 
but more or less. So she, Kirat is the warrior here. Um, Shruti is the Indian woman who survives and allies with Libby. They ally with Kirat to, to tell her story. It struck me that it, it appeared as though, like I said, all the people who had a lot of power were white, not necessarily yes. that all the white people had power. And it also struck me that the people of color didn't have power. There was also a lot of imagery of people of color as well, and white people also, I think. But a lot of the, whatever the signs and things that they showed in the store included people of color too. Mm-hmm. And so the people who were, the people who received most of the disadvantage from this whole system seemed more so to be people of color. The people who had power seemed uniformly to be people who were white. And when Libby entered the system, she had no power and she was very new. She was white, but she also completely bought into the ideology. And I thought that made her stand out against at least Shruti. And I'm not sure, I think this is going to get messy too, but I'll just, I'll say it in a way that is going to start off sounding like it makes sense. When she came in and Shruti had been there since 1980 something, clearly wasn't totally sold into, you know, didn't buy into the system completely, didn't believe all of the propaganda completely. Mm -hmm. You got more the sense that this was her job and she was doing it because she probably needed the money and whatever. She wasn't, she wasn't buying the ideals the way that Libby was, right? That Libby's, I guess I would say her privileged background, let her be a better pawn of the corporation. And so I felt like there was something there Although I do, I, it starts to get messy after a while. Like, so, okay, can I just say one other thing before we get to like Shruti dying and, and how she was never revisited, I think, after she died, which strikes me as very strange. But there was also commentary that got a little bit messy between Libby and Shruti, where there seemed to be, I felt like we were on Libby's side, if you want to put it that way, with Shruti being a bit overly defensive about being stereotyped for her racial background. I'm not saying Shruti was being overly defensive. I'm saying we in the film were situated, I thought in those scenes more so with Libby. Not that we didn't recognize some validity in what Shruti was saying, but Shruti was, I don't know if you'd say proven wrong, but a couple of times during the film, right, there was the whole thing about her being Indian and liking Bollywood music. And then she's singing Bollywood music later. And Libby points that out to her like, hey, well, you did like the music. And then there was also the commentary about like, do you speak Indian? Which was a silly thing for Libby to say. And then Shruti corrects her. And then Libby's like, yeah, but do you speak any of those languages? Then you do, right? And so there was this this strange balance where it felt to me like we were more so supposed to sympathize with Libby. I mean, I, I felt from the perspective of the film, I felt sorry for Libby when Shruti walked away after saying, you know, just because my parents were Indian doesn't mean I like that. And we're still, we're not focused on Shruti. We're focused on Libby and Libby's hurt. So I, I, something about that felt odd. There were both appeared to be really cohesive critiques on race and power. And then there appeared to be, I thought this sort of counter, almost playful sort of anti-critique that I just wasn't sure I was even seeing right. So maybe that's the first question I want to pose to you. What, what were your thoughts around that? That is a good question. <laughs> and if you're not ready to answer it, I'll throw a couple more questions out there. <laughs> but if you are, we can uh, stop well, here. Take, give me just a second to think through. How, how does Shruti die? Shruti die? Okay, I can't help but just throw this in too because oh, okay. it right ties into Craig, what you're saying. So Shruti dies by getting stabbed by Craig when she steps out and hands him the camera that does not have the SD card in it. Mm. So she's trying to, she's fighting in favor of the pants, so to speak, but she gets killed by Craig. But Shruti, I mean, we have to acknowledge that 
this ties right back to some of the arguments we made when we looked at Black Christmas, right? That there is Libby who is naive and doesn't really understand this whole structure. And, and the whole argument I was laying out at the beginning here was at least trying to say that maybe Shruti did understand this whole situation better, that Libby was the one who was idealistic and buys into the corporate ideology better. Libby is the one who convinces Shruti of the problem, tells her what to do, kind of becomes the leader and gets Shruti to take a stand. And even Craig says to Shruti, like, Shruti, you didn't used to care about anything. What do you care about now? Mm. So it's almost like Libby needed to be there in order for Shruti to take a stand, which is again, a bit weird. And then when Shruti dies, like you said, Craig stabs her. So we got to think about what that means. But she dies trying to help the pants, right? But then she's never, we never come back to her. We end looking at Libby and what Libby does when Libby opens the door. And it looks like Libby dies as well. But why was it Libby's story at the end? Because it seemed to me that that should have been a story about Shruti, especially when the whole point of the pants was that like these people in this, you know, these working conditions in India are really being violated and disenfranchised. Yes. And Shruti is crucial in that she is an important link, or she is the link between Kirat and the rest of the consumer world, because she's able to translate the story. And without her there, there would have been this separation that would have been essentially probably insurmountable of, we don't know what the story is. We don't know what the background is. Now, the question I have is, Maybe there's an argument to be made that the the story is not actually Libby's story, but it is the story of the women who are picking cotton because the film actually bookends with her picking the cotton at the very opening, right? And then isn't the final scene another young woman picking cotton in the same in the same field or whatever it is? I'm looking right now at our blood spattered store walls, and yeah, okay, so Libby dies. And yes, so the last scene is back to this experimental field, Canadian clothiers. Oh no, it does cut back to Libby. And we have the dissolve from Libby's eyeball to the O of Monday Madness, uh, which is the promotion for the store. And Monday Madness is our final, final fade to black. So my fear is that Shruti was there as an interpreter, as a logistical necessity in the story. But even when she was reading what the pants were writing on the wall, it was Libby who was often dictating to Shruti what to say to the pants, like what question to even ask. And that is messy. Mm -hmm. Like, is it really not? I I mean, yes, it's the pants story, I suppose, more than it's Libby's story or Shruti's story. But with pointed attention to race, which all the commentary between Libby and Shruti certainly elevates that as an issue. I mean, the fact that Shruti does come from the same country that this exploitation is happening in, it seems very strange. If it were interchangeable, if it could have been Libby's or Shruti's story, it should be Shruti's. And so why was it Libby's? Or was there was there some reasoning behind that? Or what? I don't know if that's a clear enough yeah. question I'm posing. Or I think it is. Let me offer some thoughts. So if we were to ask Kephart, it would be something like, was it directed at Libby because the audience for this film is much more likely to be consumers, particularly white consumers of these kinds of clothes. So you're trying to connect to them more and their participation in the process. Is there something there about Shruti is not, is actually specified. She's not from India. 
she's first generation native of immigrant parents, right? Doesn't she say my pa- my parents came from, and now I'm I'm from here. Yeah. She does, yeah. I thought maybe the, and then let me throw another wrinkle in there. Is sorry, I, I just got a uh, sidetracked thinking about why it was that the parent pants didn't attack Shruti was they overheard the Bollywood song. Is that right? Her singing? Right. Um, so it wasn't even really her compliance in their quest. It was just that they started dancing as far as I saw it. So that was a bit confusing as well. Yeah, I kind of really want, uh, I kind of want that to be something about with, I think all most resistance to capitalism. There is a component of the carnival and just the whimsical and just these very difficult to commodify experiences of dancing, singing, just enjoying life and enjoying the creative expression of people. I don't know if that was really there so much as it was, like you said, it was just a reminder of, of the, the culture and maybe there being some source of ally. And then, so help me, is our concern here that Shruti is relegated to like an ally uh, sidekick role? What, what is that in Collins? Pat Hill Collins talks about it, particularly with like black actors, particularly in like action films. So the, the, the person of color is never the star. They're there to basically make the white lead look that much better. They can get saved by the white lead when they get in trouble or whatever it is. Is that, is that what we're worried about Shruti becoming? Yeah, and I think that especially stands in stark opposition to what I was throwing out at the beginning, which was at least my initial take on the dynamic between Shruti and Libby, which was that Libby was this newcomer who really didn't understand things and is proven, her optimism about the corporation is proven wrong over the course of the film, where Shruti was a little bit more seasoned in that way. She understood things a little bit better. She wasn't, didn't buy into the corporation so much. So why did she need Libby to save the world? Libby was starting at such a deficit and is such a child, basically, and Shruti's been here since 1989. Shruti, Shruti had the skills in terms of, because these pants were from India, she was necessary, but why was Libby the driver? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I don't have a good answer for that either. And I think that that does raise real concerns about, about Shruti being relegated to a secondary role and an instrumental role when it really doesn't make sense based on the background. And like you said, she, there's a couple moments early on where it, it really does seem like she has become very savvy at navigating the, all this bullshit of the corporate, corporate structure. And so she knows the game inside and out so she can play it just enough to be left alone enough to do what she's going to do to get by and, and make do. But she is very also over it. She's, you know, this isn't so great. And yeah, I, I just settle down with your chipper enthusiasm. And so, yes, it, so what if we flip that and we have Shruti be the very savvy, like disillusioned person? What does Libby contribute then? Well, Libby could be the sidekick. I mean, Shruti could right. convince Libby, just like Libby convinced Shruti of what's going on. She could save her somehow. If anything, that would work maybe better because it would be 
a symbol of really the movie trying to save people in Libby's role. Look, open your eyes. You need to see what's actually going on here. And then as Libby changes her mind over the course of the film, that could be sort of Shruti's accomplishment in dragging Libby along instead of just letting the pants eat her like every other minion of the corporation. Yeah, initial thought. I like that better. And I think that gets a little sticky. Maybe not sticky, but it's certainly unclear and it risks that there it risks falling into these into those tropes of the the person of color being the secondary sidekick ally instrumental person without being the star of the the film and then why have the other commentary because it came up twice in the film why have that commentary on race from shruti what was what's the driver behind having her character make a point twice in the film against stereotyping her and then like i said get kind of proven wrong but only kind of i mean i feel like we empathize with both sides of that argument in those scenes it's not like we were clearly on libby's side but i don't have a good answer but what it makes me think of is is adiche's danger of a single story and one of her concluding points is that the the problem with stereotypes is not that they're wrong so much as they're incomplete and so the problem with thinking that an Indian person might enjoy Bollywood films or might speak Hindu or Urdu or, or another uh, have other familiarity with the culture. It's that that's all that we think they are. And they're, they're reduced to just those experiences uh, or those talents or skills. And so I, I have to say, I think there was some just, some of it seemed to be just a t- attempt of humor of kind of like, well, why'd you assume that? And then she's like, well, I mean, I do, but you still shouldn't have assumed it. You know, honestly, I thought that was kind of funny. I mean, I, I appreciate that with the second case, uh, it then becomes a pattern, not just an isolated. And it would, be, it would have been nice if we had learned more about Shruti. So, because then it could have been, yeah, I, I'm, a, or I'm the kid of immigrants, so yes, I do still have awareness of Indian culture and religion and music and whatever, but I don't know if she, I don't even know, but something else that was like part of her personality that we learned more about her, I don't know, but something, you know what I mean, to round out her character. Although to, to that same critique, I mean, it's different because of the history of problematic representations of particularly people of color in films, it's not an equivalence, but I will say that we really don't know anything about Lily, uh, Libby either, except that she's super into Canadian clothing, or I don't know, whatever the brand is, whatever the main brand is. Do we know anything else about Libby? We don't know anything else about her, do we? She doesn't know who Green Day is. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, that, but that's a good scene too, when Shruti throws it back at her like, it makes just as much sense for me to think that you would know this about Green Day being from Greenville or being white or whatever the the call there was. If it was meant to be a play for laughs, it's a risky play for laughs. And if it was some other message that we aren't getting, we aren't getting it. And I think that's worth pointing out. Yeah, I don't want to belabor this, so I'll let it go. But I I do think in the context of the film and in the context of the messaging it was putting out there, it's really important to know in those scenes, because there were two, I guess, 
fairly substantial scenes, it's important to know who the film thought was right. Was the film on Libby's side in critiquing Shruti for being a little bit too defensive about things that she shouldn't have been defensive about? Or was the film on Shruti's side really lecturing Libby for something that was valid? And I don't know, but I think when you combine it with the danger of the fact that it became Libby's story later, that Shruti dies and we never revisit her. And I, I don't know, there, there's just something about that that I think is potentially problematic. It can also be funny, like you said, there, there was levity in that too, but just given the arguments it's making and, and given again, not that this is just some little racial commentary kind of in the context of a wider film about something else. During the Q&A. Kephart. What was that? Kephart. Kephart. So she mentioned global warming. She mentioned climate change. She meant to mention that those types of environmental issues as something that this film was, was fighting against. She didn't really mention international power differentials and labor conditions. Now that's not to say that seemed much more clearly what the film was about to me than, than climate change related issues. They all can fall under the same umbrella in a lot of ways, but there's just something about the fact that the film the racial identity of the woman, or at least the identity of her parents going back historically of the woman who is like a main character in the film and has this commentary on race with another main white character represents the country where all of this harm is happening. There's something that just gets messy about that. And there was a little tinge of, to reinvoke Ma, of the get over it vibe. And, and I don't know, I, I, maybe I was misreading it. Like I was really curious what you were thinking too, because I'm not totally sure that was there, but... I'm not sure it wasn't there either. I'm right there with you. I don't have more. And like you said, to, to move to move forward, I think we've said as much as we need to say about it. I think okay. you, you have. Or that we can say without more information, a rewatch or talking to a director or something. But the only other piece that I was thinking would still be the, would be the gender commentary. And the. I feel like we ought to say something about the fact that the super shapers are supposed to be the first... I actually like that. I liked so I liked the fact that they were these are supposed to be the first like truly maybe not truly but this truly like one size fits all but the one size fits all for this super narrow hegemonic standard of beauty. You could be a man or you could be a woman and you could be 5 pounds underweight or you could be 5 pounds overweight and as long as you're right in that you know little narrow slice of humanity these will fit you perfectly. They'll shape to your body. They'll use your temperature to accentuate your cell, your body to look perfect and ideal. That I really appreciated. It makes me think of, did you ever watch Community? Yeah. Okay, the human being. <laughs> right. <laughs> the Greendale human beings is their mascot, which is they've decided is going to be this completely... They, they go to the side of if we choose anything for our mascot, it'll be offensive to somebody. So we're going to choose the like least characterizable mascot and they end up being the human being. It made me think of that, which I, I appreciated that satire. Although I will say without, with the exception of that one nod, it seemed like really everything was, was directed towards women and that fashion and that, I mean, the bloggers, the woman is the, I'm trying to think who the shoppers were, but it really seems. Lord to does me... try to steal the pants. Oh yeah. 
and, and he tries to put them on too, doesn't he? Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. I don't think it needed to be there necessarily needed to be more. Again, it, now thinking back on it, obviously we've identified places where we have concerns, but they were able to do a lot. Cause now I'm thinking of when Libby is trying on some of their outfits and has to go through quite a few outfits before she finds something that she can wear and thinks, I think she's supposed to not look great in some of those outfits. And I appreciated that. I felt like there was maybe a little bit of commentary there too of here's, you know, a very attractive young person who would typically fit. You would think that would fit those standards of beauty. And she really can't even find anything that really fits her and works well. And there being a little bit of commentary there. I want to circle back to race and gender with our one white dude who spends the whole time in like the bathroom or whatever, and then wanders out at the end of the film. Was that in a credit sequence? You know who I'm talking about? I do from the end, but when he came out at the end, I couldn't remember when he had gone in there or who he was. So remind me who he was at the beginning. I don't know who he was at the beginning either. That's actually hilarious that you say that. Cause I was like, and then he says something like, Hey Hunter, it's been longer than, Oh, isn't he? Oh, he's canoodling the one who's <laughs> canoodling with, uh, with somebody. And yeah. With Hunter, right? She said, meet me in the stock room in 10 minutes or whatever. Right, right. So on the bright or on the positive side, that could mean that the white men can just remain a clueless and above this entire fray and just be stuck in a dark closet, oblivious to the entire range of issues and all of this happening. And that, that would be a nice, easy read that was really kind of fun. That might be another... So he's a, he's a white man without any power, but he still survives and is not only survives, but has no trauma of survival or attack or suffering to, to survive. So that was a nice little add-on. It was. You know, I will say, though, on the, on the comment of the outtakes or the, you know, the credit sequences at the end, I didn't love that we go from the scene at the end of the film where Kirat, that was her name, right? I mean, Kirat's story is really sad. And what this represents in the world is really sad. And then we see a worker on this farm, you know, on this cotton farm at the end. And that's a really, really important, really sad scene and message. And I didn't love that when that then cut to the credits, one of the first things we saw in the credits was, I mean, it was super cool to see in the credits how they did the the green costume to make the jeans dance and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that felt very light. And I, I didn't really appreciate that switch to such, haha, this was a fun film to make levity from that point, because mm-hmm. I really thought it diminished the point. I mean, you know, we talk about horror films and the ability for that fear to, to really drive home the social importance of the point mm-hmm. that's being made. And to me, that just... Like I said, Kirat's story, I think, deserved more gravity than more gravity than it was given by returning to Libby at the end, because this was not Libby's story. Libby really shouldn't have been the main focus at all, I think. And then also by kind of jumping into like, this was a really fun thing to shoot and haha, we had a fun romp about pants that could kill people. There was just something in that that actually felt really wrong to me. It makes me think of, in contrast, the the end of Swallow where the camera just sits on that bathroom and just lets you 
as a viewer, sit with that story and think about how life continues and all these people are coming in and out of this bathroom without none, none the wiser that someone like the main character in that could have just been in there going through this on and on this dramatic, brutal story. I mean, that absolutely, that held the gravity of the film. And I think your point is well made that this, this did not, it makes me think of that contrast in, in ending. And I have to say it, should we grade it? Sure. Yeah. I'm torn. And I think I feel similarly to how I felt coming in, which I think on the consumer culture front, it did, it was great and it was fun to watch and it was well done. And I totally applaud it in that category, but I do think it's still, even after our conversation, I feel like it's sticky on the race front and it's a little bit sticky on the, yeah, the importance of the messaging with regard to international power and how people are being trampled on by this corporate machine, which I, I get that that's what it was about, but there's just something about the gravity of that and the specific ways in which that ties into, you know, Shruti's character in particular that I'm, isn't sitting super well with me. So I'm not sure how to, I'm not sure how to average those two out. To me, it sounds like we're either at B plus or A minus. It's like, okay, so we were, we summoned the darkness. We gave an A minus. And I think this film accomplished a lot more. I think it did a lot more good than We Summon the Darkness, but I, I'm, I fear that there was some bad. And so I'm trying to figure out how to weigh that, you know, for what it did well, it did a much better job than We Summon the Darkness, which we gave an A minus. So maybe I feel like it deserves an A minus. But on the other hand, some of these things really do feel like important problems to me. And I hate to, I hate to bypass them. Whereas I didn't have those, as many at least of those reservations with We Summon the Darkness. Maybe we should lower the grade for We Summon the Darkness. <laughs> to merit, which would make it more fair. I mean, I, you know, I think there's something to be said here too for the fact that uh, they found a creative way to address social concerns that are very real, including fast fashion and consumerism and the cool jobs phenomenon and some of these that we just don't see in horror. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to undersell that with my critique because absolutely. I think it it did a phenomenal job of that and it was fun to watch and for being a a relatively small film in terms of the production and resources and everything that they had at their disposal, I think they did an amazing job. So, and I, I mean, I just, this is your, well, depending on how you look at it, your bad influence on me, Laura, of I'm like, let's give the A minus as a, and then comment, give the encouraging grade rather than the like punishing, instead of like punishing for what they missed, the encouraging grade for what they did right and how much they, how far they got, particularly with, with ideas that we, we don't see. I mean, we just don't see. I mean, you and I, we've seen in Fabric and we saw it in, in her skin. I feel like we saw something else that was vaguely, but nobody else sees that. <laughs> I mean, nobody, by that, I mean, it's a very small. These are, within a subgenre, these are even still smaller subgenres. That's good to give a shout out to In Your Skin also for anyone who's interested in these types of ideas and wants to see it laid out in a completely different way. I love that movie. In my skin, by the way. Don's Mapia. Oh, oh. 
in right. my skin. You're right. I but, liked uh, it. I didn't love it, but I loved our discussion. You made me love it more. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know it wasn't, that wasn't like your, your thing, but I did. I love that movie. That was one of the ones where you got it too. And I wouldn't have gotten it the way you got it if you hadn't have been there. So it wasn't until after our, our discussion that, that I think it really sunk in for me. So also plug for if you watch the film, listening to the podcast. Cause totally. You did a lot to help me with that uh, one. Okay. I, I just want to make the opposite argument, which is probably just your influence on me here, Michael. And then I'm probably going to come back to where you are because I think I really do want to give it an A for everything it did and, and be willing to overlook those other pieces. But there's just something that makes me a little bit sad about being sociologists who are focusing on films from this exact perspective and are willing to give an A to a film that may have totally pulled out the like white savior trope in the context of specific commentary on really at least international racial inequality. Like that's a, that's potentially a big problem. And I feel like if we're willing to just hand wave it off, that's a a comment on where we're setting the bar on that sort of thing that troubles me a bit. However, it did accomplish a lot. That's not the only argument it was making. And it did a lot with what it did. And I certainly have made the argument many times over with many films. We don't have to expect every film to do everything. It just seems like for directly calling attention to that type of issue, I don't know. I, I, some, something about that sits a little, a little unwell with me because an A is really high. Then again, it did some things very well. It did, and, and I still wouldn't go above the A-, minus. but Kirat is still, Kirat is the lead of the film. I know that, her identity doesn't get a lot because she becomes the pants, but it really, it really is her film. We see her die. We see her chewed up in the machinery of capitalism at the same time. I'm struggling too, because there's few things that annoy me more than the whole, especially for those listening. Again, we're in Boulder. We're in Colorado. Everybody is a fucking outdoors person. And, every clothing line it seems like that does anything extreme or whatever winter outdoor not even winter outdoor sports has organic cotton and environmental carbon offset alpaca fed whatever vegan but none of them have any ever say anything about how do we pay our workers who's making the i mean i I called out Patagonia for, for as much as I appreciate the durability of their clothes. I called them out because they released this big map about how ethically they're sourcing all of their, all of the materials for their clothing. And it was all environment and there was not a mention of labor on the entire thing. And that, that labor bit gets totally falls out and it's all carbon neutral and this and that. And it's like, the labor piece here with Libby was much emphasized much more than the labor piece with Kirat. I mean, obviously she got ground up in the machines, but there was no, they can't afford these clothes. They're getting pennies on the dollar compared to even the $5 that is the company's paying for and the 150 that the white upper middle class folks are paying for this. But that's a pet peeve of mine or a, or a pet issue of mine because I'm so labor focused. And you saying that really get, really also emphasizes that concern here with the film, even within, like you said, the understanding that we, we have to appreciate that not every film can do everything. Go ahead. You were going to. Yeah, One of the most important things I wanted to say, and I, I, I'm so glad that we kept 
talking here for a while so it would come up. Right at the end of the, end of the film when the pants are, okay, when is it? Okay, it's right at the end of the film. It's before Libby dies because Libby says it. Doesn't Libby turn to the pants and say something like, this isn't, vent- or, this isn't justice? Yeah. Because the pants are going to kill the consumers. And then I wondered, and I just wasn't sure with how it was shot immediately after that, I wondered if the tone was meant to be that this Libby was a tragedy. Like Libby's death was sad and the pants were a little bit evil because they were overreacting. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but they were, they were characterized as evil, I feel like, in the moment after Libby said that. And it just had something to do with how it was shot that gave me that impression. And that raised questions as well, because if the, if the pants are really Kirat and her story, that needs to be elevated, not said to be a, an overreaction. Yeah. Uh, now, granted, killing people isn't justice. I mean, that's it's sort of its own <laughs> truth as well. But I think you, it's risky when the whole film is situated around such a horrible injustice and then to turn to the aggressor and be like, hey, come on, you shouldn't be killing people. I mean, it's a horror, in the context, especially of a horror film, I don't know, there, there's something sticky about that messaging. Right. These people haven't done anything to you. This isn't right, Kirat. This isn't justice. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so again, we're asking the oppressed workers and the, the folks who are at the bottom of the system to be the ones to rise above and take the high road, even though the folks with privilege and relative privilege and power of the consumers, I mean, they're not, they're not arguably as bad as the owner of the company and all of that, but they're certainly in a better position than the Kirat and her, her fellow workers or her, the other people that are picking cotton with her as exploited labor. Yes. To say, you've given your life, but now you need to rise above and, and take the high road. Yeah. I think that's another little ding on the, on the uh, checklist. I, I'm, I'm happy to settle at a B plus. I, I, I still want to give it an A minus honestly for everything it did do, but these things just do feel substantial. It's like, I want to, I want them fixed. And then I want, I want, right. I want to be able to let it go. I'm really torn. I and mean, we could say 90. No, because the 90 is an A minus. <sighs> See, I, I would do the 89 as the symbolic B plus, even though it is just that point. Like it's, but that's the, that's the punisher in me. And that's the kind hearted optimist uh, of you that speaks volumes to our character. I think you, Laura. <laughs> I'm really torn. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm usually not this torn, but I'm really torn. And, you know, I think even I can almost I can explain away some of these things, you know, even the the argument that this isn't justice like, no, it's not. And I mean, the overall argument of the film would be that the consumers are victims as well. But you're exactly right that asking the person who is most depressed on the totem pole to be understanding of those who are a step sort of above in the chain of exploitation is not. Why would you take the time to make that point, I guess? There's some truth to the fact that, like I said, everyone in this system, aside from the corporation, I suppose, is a victim to some extent. But why would you point that out? That's... Instead, why don't you get on the horn and invite some more influencers and 
bloggers into the store. <laughs> I'm sticking with my 89. I'm happy with that. Who knows? Maybe we'll get to hear from the from Kephart. We can she can she can come back in and argue for her grade to be yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Clarify some of these things. That would be great. <laughs> she she can come great. to office hours. <laughs> All right, this is a Mile High Horror Film Festival special episode of our Collective Nightmares podcast. We appreciate you joining us. We hope you listen to some of our other episodes. We're going to be doing, we're going to be covering some other films for the, from the festival. So we, uh, we appreciate your listening. Horror films are our collective nightmares. You know, we, we, we may be sociologists, but we still put, put our pants on one leg at a time. That's how we're going to approach the discussion of this film. <laughs> I was going for like grabbing a handful of something, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite pull it together. <laughs> oh, it was, that was the worst thing ever. Uh, let me try another one. Um. You know, listening to this podcast will keep you in season and on trend and this discussion in particular will will keep you up uh on the on the latest style info that you need oh, this i'm just and flailing here from the late 1800s <laughs> i'm flailing laura uh why is nothing coming to me this time oh okay and with that, Libby, bar the door. We're coming in, coming for the podcast. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> They're all bad. They're all like not good, bad, just bad, bad. I got nothing, Laura. Help me out. You've come, you've shined. You've come through before in a pinch. I, yeah, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not, I'm not feeling enlightened tonight. I have a visual of the butt and this. <laughs> And if you could see my hands, maybe. <laughs> but I, I can't put that into words. Well, I think one of those that is bad is just going to have to... Oh, hold on. Um, and with that, we're going we're gonna to dig deep into the pockets of our, of our jeans and see what we can dig out. <laughs> What's any better? I'm over four. Fuck it, Laura. That's good enough. Uh, <laughs> Was it Dawn of the Dead? Uh, I don't know. Uh, let me, hold on. Let me pull that up. Uh, there's so many of the deads. <laughs> it's, it's, hard, it's hard to keep track. Well, I'm glad uh, it's not just me. I, all of the old zombie movies, I have to admit, their names kind of blur together for me. Not even just, just Romero movies. Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Return of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead. There's like seven of them. And there's remakes of several of them as well uh let's see uh okay i didn't get that in the episode list (laughs) note to self i think it's dawn of the dead i think so too 
Okay. No, so I already found the setting in like Zoom's advanced features or whatever. Uh, but I just wanted to know if there was any difference between what they, how they say it'll work and how it actually works. That was yeah, I don't know. I can help you, know. you with that with breakout rooms because there is totally a difference between how they say it will work and how it actually works. Um, but yeah, through like several weeks, I figured out how to do it, which was nice. Yeah, that, that was all. Well, I guess maybe I'll tell you, I can let you know how it goes. Cool. Yeah, that'd be great, actually. That'd be super good to know. Yeah. I have some sort of, I have a new computer. Thank you, CU. Um, oh, but yeah, way to go. It's, I haven't found the setting. I'm looking for it again to get, to let Zoom do high def. That's what I was just Clearly looking for not. here. I'll do it later. But, <laughs> but. I said clearly not. Because, yeah, you look like. Yeah, a ghost and blurry. Yeah, you look like you're zooming in from 2002. I know, <laughs> I know. Do you remember where it is? If you don't, it doesn't matter. It's not important for right now. But No, um, but, but obviously you remember that some of the settings have to be done online. There's only so much you can do from the in-app. Yeah, yeah, but there is a way to make the camera better. Because I did it on my last one, and then I was like, oh, that's so much better. Anyway. Sure. So, all right. Can we um? Can we here enable about... HD? My video. Where where is it? Where is it? It's just in settings video. Oh, it's just here. Enable oh. Enable HD. Silly. Let's okay. wait. Um, oh look, it's a kitty. Biter, hippo, biter. <laughs> oh, that's better. Are you gonna like burst into, you know, high def, wait. high res color, <laughs> 3D here? Where is it? Integrated webcam, high def. Oh, something just happened. Yeah, it did. But then there's like, there's no like OK button or something. Let me see here. Yeah, because I, I mean, turned it off, it went back. It doesn't. It's not important, I suppose, at this uh, moment. I can also see a much larger range of your background. Cool. So what happened with your sprinkler story? You're out in the park. Behind your house? Oh my gosh, it was so sad. It was so sad. We went camping 20 feet outside the front door in the grass, and it was so nice. And over that little, time. just down to the end of your row of buildings or whatever? Yeah, yeah. There are just some pine trees down there. And so we just went and set up the tent right in front of the pine trees. And it was perfect. It was, it was just, it was perfect because we didn't have to drive anywhere. We didn't have to like make a big production out of it. He was all excited and he's like dancing down there, like so happy about it. And oh. I brought a bunch of blankets and sleeping bags and had him put his winter coat on because it gets cold at night now. And, yeah. you know, I thought we might be chilly. We read a book by flashlight and he fell asleep great and it was so cool because we thought we heard the coyotes you can hear them over the field sometimes and it was so nice and then i three hours maybe four hours into sleeping i got woken up by just getting pummeled by water and realized the sprinklers had turned on and not only was our tent almost on top of a sprinkler which i felt better when i went out there today i was thinking like how did i not notice that but they they sink down and then they come up so they, it wasn't obvious that we were parked almost entirely on top of a sprinkler but that wasn't the problem sprinkler the problem one was like 15 feet away and it was like a fire hose like it was strong and so it was blowing straight through the tent and i got out and first tried to take the rain cover and just put it over the tent 
which I didn't put on there at first because I wanted us to be able to see, cause you can see out and see the stars and like see through the side, you know, but it wouldn't cut it because this thing was so strong. I tried to put a, a bag from the tent, from some of the tent supplies over top of the sprinkler and it just like blasted it right off. I mean, it was really strong. I was sopping wet, like I had jumped into a swimming pool and then climbed in the tent and the stuff in the tent was just getting, I mean, just like flooding drenched. And I had to wake him up because he's a great sleeper. And he sort of looked confused. He <laughs> slept like, through this? You. Yeah, oh, he slept right through it. I was like, I'm carrying you in the house because <laughs> there's like a flood in here. <laughs> and he he was a trooper about that. He was a little bit, you know, I mean, he we're still getting like sprayed with sprinklers on our way back to the house. And I, I dropped him inside. And he's like, my underwear is wet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I said, go, go upstairs, take off all your clothes, take off anything that's wet, put on dry stuff, and then just get in bed. And I'll, I'll be back in in a little bit. But you know, it's like one o'clock in the morning. And I had to go get all our stuff because it was like just getting really like buckets of water drenched. It wasn't like a little sprinkle. It was like just fire hose. Oh, it was terrible. And so I'm back and forth and back and forth. It took me probably like 45 minutes. get just drenchedly sopping wet by the time I got back and all of our blankets and sleeping bags and everything were so wet and heavy. And it was just, it was a mess. I was trying to drag my phone out of the sopping puddle of like swimming pool that I was dragging back to the house. And the book that we were reading was of course like completely sopping wet. And the only bright side to all of this was well that I came inside and texted you and you were still there. And so I was happy to be able to tell someone <laughs> about my tragedy. Um, and also that Noah fell back asleep, which was remarkable because he's not a, I mean, it woke me up for about three hours. Like I had a hard time. Granted, I was also drenchedly dragging stuff back and forth to the house. But I was, I was afraid he'd be up all night and then be crabby all day. And right. his, the light was on in his room because I thought he's not going to go to bed without me. He's going to be kind of startled and shaken and whatever. But when I went up there to turn the light off, he had just passed out, which is great. He's a really good sleeper. I'm, I'm jealous of his sleeping genes. So that worked out all right. And then I went to my room and just like laid there awake. It's like, go to sleep, go to sleep. But it oh. felt like noon because when you trek back and forth in the freezing cold, drenched and wet for an hour in the middle of the night, it's like really hard to convince yourself it's time to go back to bed. But it was, you know, it was half a success. Because it was, we had fun camping and it was a great way to camp. I don't know why I would go to a campsite, you know? I mean, for his age, like I feel like he got everything out of it that he needed. Just next time we're gonna do it on the other side of the fence, on the non-sprinklered side of the fence. There you go. Thank you for listening to my story. (laughs) In the middle of the night. Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I was, try- I was dancing on the, are you ready to laugh about it yet line. So I said a couple of things. I was kind of like, gotta admit, at least, you know, if I were somebody watching this, I would, I'd probably be laughing because you're not hurt. It'd be fine. <laughs> no. I mean, I know it's miserable, but it's, 